Health, BBC News. This is Sarah Hopeful and Nicole Alley with your local news, coming to you live from the WRT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin has a Republican challenger. Rajani Ravindran is a first-time candidate and a 40-year-old college student. She's expected to announce her candidacy tonight at a launch on the Stevens Point campus. Ravindran is the chair of the UW-Stevens Point College Republicans and, according to her campaign materials, is seeking to bring perspectives of the average citizen to Washington. Other high-profile Republicans, such as U.S. Representatives Mike Gallagher and Tom Tiffany, have opted out of running for this election. Other rumored Republican challengers who have not officially announced include Madison developer Eric Hovde and former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. So too is Scott Mayer, a businessman and former race car driver from Franklin. Incumbent Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat, announced her re-election campaign this spring. She's seeking a third term in Washington in next year's fall election. The Wisconsin Elections Commission has approved a redesign of absentee ballots that are aimed at making reading and completing ballots easier, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Envelopes will be color-coded, the clerk's initial field will be moved to the top, and will feature a numbered three-step process for voters to follow. The redesign was developed after Elections Commission staff gathered feedback in May to July about the, un- about the usability of the ballots. Officials say that all of these changes are meant to better meet voters' needs and increase security at the polls. These changes will be required beginning in the spring 2024 primary. We're one week into a new liberal majority on the state Supreme Court, and in that time, a second challenge to Wisconsin's voting maps has been filed with the state Supreme Court. This time, it's mathematicians and scientists hoping to change the state's gerrymandering. Members of the Citizen Mathematicians and Scientists filed the lawsuit on Friday, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The lawsuit alleges that the current maps violate free speech and equal protection guarantees by diminishing Democrat voting power and entrenching a Republican majority in the Senate. The lawsuit calls for new maps to be drawn in time for the 2024 elections. The 608 area code is expected to run out of available phone numbers early next year, the Public Service Commission announced today. So Southwest Wisconsin is getting an additional area code 353. Customers may get a 353 area code when they request a new service or phone line starting as soon as the middle of next month. The new 353 area code will cover the southwest corner of the state, including Madison. It'll stretch south to Beloit, southwest to Platteville, and west to La Crosse. More details have emerged surrounding the departure of former MMSD Communications Director Tim Lamonts, reports Channel 3000. Channel 3000 reports that Lamonts was subject to a second investigation into his conduct, and that investigation, contrary to an earlier investigation, recommended his termination after finding merit in allegations that he had bullied and harassed colleagues. Lamonts' attorneys denied those findings, maintaining that the media had, quote, decided to lead a vendetta against him, unquote. Lamonts retired from the district in July. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that he received $40,000 as part of his retirement agreement. Ahan, a Pan-Asian restaurant that received a top culinary honor earlier this year, is moving. The restaurant is headed to the former El Dorado space on Willie Street. 
The owners, Jamie and Chucky Brown Sukasumi, tell the Wisconsin State Journal that they're looking forward to having more seating and their own bar. The restaurant, currently combined with the Burr Oak on Winnebago Street, can sometimes be a bit cramped. It sits 16 people in front and can't serve its own alcohol due to liquor licensing. The restaurant is expected to open its new location in October. Bernie Sanders is headed to Madison next month as part of the Cap Times Idea Fest, organizers announced today. The progressive senator from Vermont will be the keynote speaker during the fest on Friday, September 22nd. He's made stops in Madison in 2022, 2019, and 2016. Other guests at IdeaFest include Adam Kinzinger, the former U.S. Representative Illinois who served on the January 6th committee, along with former PBS NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff and Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. And now on to today's top stories. Governor Evers announced today that he's called a special legislative session next month. He's calling on Republican lawmakers to approve funding for child care and workforce development, proposals they stripped out of the budget earlier this summer. WRT producer Nate Carlin has a story. Governor Evers signed an executive order today that requires the legislature to convene for a special session in September. Like all special sessions, this session will be focused on a particular legislative goal, workforce development. With already historically low unemployment and high workforce participation in a shrinking labor pool, Wisconsin's small businesses and other critical employers and industries continue to face significant generational challenges filling available jobs. In total, the governor is calling for an increase of $1 billion in state spending, pooling from the state's historic $4 billion budget surplus. The largest budget item he is proposing is a $365 million investment in child care support, primarily to make the Child Care Counts program permanent. The program began in 2020 as a response to the pandemic and provided government aid to child care programs. Without the funding, the program will shut down in January. Ruth Schmidt, executive director of the Wisconsin Early Childhood Association, told WORT in June that without continued funding from the state, finding a child care provider will get even harder. The bottom line is, it is very, very challenging for parents and caregivers with young children to find and afford care in the state of Wisconsin. Yes, it's true across our nation. It is also significantly challenging in Wisconsin and anticipated to get significantly worse before it gets better. A recent report from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum found that the labor-intensive economics of child care education is squeezing all stakeholders. Families face high costs, employees face low wages, and providers are operating on thin margins. The governor is also asking the legislature to take up other workforce education programs, like a paid family and medical leave program and more funding for the UW system. This year, unemployment hit an all-time low in Wisconsin, with the Department of Labor reporting the unemployment rate at 2.4% in April. At the same time, Wisconsin had its lowest ever workforce participation rate in February of this year, at 64.5%, according to data from the Federal Reserve. The two numbers in conjunction indicate that a significant portion of Wisconsinites do not have a job and are not seeking a job, a phenomenon that could be fueled by high childcare costs. But while Evers can order the legislature into special session, he can't order them to take up his bills. And it's likely the Republican-dominated legislature will once again gavel in and gavel out, as they did during most of the dozen special sessions Evers called in his first term on things like gun control and abortion laws. 
Only one of Evers' special sessions has actually resulted in a new law. Called in January 2021, Republicans approved a bill to modernize Wisconsin's unemployment system in the midst of the pandemic. This is the first special session Evers has called in his second term. Speaking outside a child care center in Milwaukee this morning, the governor said that this time Republicans might be on board. Now, I would bet there's some folks out there who will ask why this special session will be any different. Republicans have gaveled in and gaveled out of my special sessions before. Well, here's why. Because at the end of the day, I know that Republicans do not want to be responsible for farmers, hospitals, schools, and other businesses in their district not being able to find workers because parents can't find care for their kids. Top Republican leaders expressed skepticism about next month's session. In a statement, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss called Evers' move a stunt and a rehash of the budget debate earlier this year. Voss signaled that Republicans' top priority in September would be passing a tax cut that Evers previously vetoed. The special session is scheduled for six weeks from now, on Wednesday, September 20th. Reporting for WORT, this is Nate Carlin. Two unions representing workers at Madison Gas and Electric are still in negotiations with the utility company. And while negotiations have been happening for months, a proposal from MG&E to hike rates could be putting extra pressure to finalize new contracts. WORT reporter Willow Polish has the story. Local 39 of the OPEIU, that's the Office and Professional Employees International Union, represents about 80 employees at Madison Gas and Electric, the majority of whom work in offices or at the call center. The major issue on the table for OPEIU is wage increase, along with in-person versus online working policies, health care, and protections from outsourcing work. Kelsey Hahn, chief steward of OPEIU, explains. And, you know, even the company acknowledges that our lowest paid workers really are deeply underpaid. This is all amidst MGE's application for a rate increase before the state's Public Service Commission. MGE says the rate hike would fund their renewable energy efforts. The rate hike would also mean about a $5 increase to a customer's electric bill in 2024 and an additional $5 increase in 2025, according to their website. The rate increase, MGE claims, can help partially meet OP. PEIU's wage demands if the contracts are settled quickly. Han elaborates. What they've been telling us is that with the status of the rate case, that part of it is already finalized, that there's something they can kind of appeal to get our wages covered as part of it if it gets closed out in the next couple weeks. But I mean, the difference between what we want for wages and what they want to pay us is maybe what, a couple of consultants? A timeline by the Citizens Utility Board in June put the public hearing about this rate increase in September or October, but with it getting brought up in union negotiations, it calls into question if the union's bargaining will end up affecting the rate case. Han says both parties have an interest in settling this sooner with the right conditions. You know, the company would like to settle quickly. Frankly, I would like to settle sooner rather than later as well, because my members have been waiting 15 months for a pay raise through record inflation. I don't want to draw this out either, but it also doesn't matter if the pay raise that you get at the end of all that isn't enough to make up for inflation. WORT asked MGE for comment today. In a short statement, spokesperson Dana Bruick wrote that MGE has a long-standing relationship with OPEIU Local 39 and remains in negotiations with the union leadership to reach an agreement in the best interest of our employees and those we serve. We look forward to continuing those discussions. In the meantime, IBEW Local 2304 
the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, has also been in contract negotiations with MGE since March. Nate Rasmussen, the president of the union, explains. We're trying to address recruitment and retention. IBEW 2304 are the people out in the field in the white and green trucks who keep the lights on and the gas flowing in the Madison area. So we've seen a lot of turnover. We don't typically see, which, you know, lowers our experience level to a certain degree. And and we're worried that lowering that more puts the safety and reliability of our grid at risk, you know, the safety of our workers at risk. Wages have been the primary concern for both unions, currently in the long game of negotiations with MGE. The IBEW workers are currently working under an extended contract as negotiations continue, and they're in a similar situation with their office counterparts. We have different but similar issues, the office workers and us, and, you know, we just want to make sure that we can run the utility safely and effectively, and and we're trying to make sure we can do that and support the workers who do that, who live in the community we serve. Both unions acknowledge their historic ties to each other through MGE and the need to bargain in solidarity. Han from OPEIU concluded. The company has really portrayed itself, you know, community energy company. We really want to be there for our community. Well, a lot of your workers are part of the community, too. And how do you expect your community to thrive if you aren't paying your workers who are part of that enough to thrive? More negotiations are planned this week. IBEW and MGE tomorrow and OPEIU and MGE on Thursday. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Willow Polish. The new state budget shares new revenue with municipalities across Wisconsin, but not every community is seeing the same size bump. WRT reporter Nate Carlin sat down with Hope Carnop to discuss her new article in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It visits the small town of Popple River, where revenue sharing has given the town new options for spending. A new report published today by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel looks at Wisconsin's second smallest town, the town of Popple River. They're getting a 5,000% increase in shared revenue funding under the new state budget, increasing from $600 of state money to more than $30,000. That is true across Wisconsin, where a new floor on revenue sharing means that many small communities are seeing a jump in the money they receive from the state. The reporter who uncovered the story is Hope Carnop, reporting for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. She's also a WORT News alumna, and she joins me now to talk about her story. Hi, Hope. How are you today? Good. Thank you so much for having me on. So you say you stumbled across this town, Popple River, while looking at the state shared revenue bill. Um, How did you come to this as a story? Sure. Yeah. So I was just looking at um, the distributions that every city, village, town, and county is getting in Wisconsin um, under the new shared revenue agreement. Um, And I had noticed that some towns were getting really high increases up to 1,000, 2,000 percent over what they had gotten in previous years. And then I came across Pobble River, which is getting a 500,000 percent increase in shared revenue. So I reached out and asked them if they had plans for spending the money. Um, And I ended up going to Pobble River, which is about four and a half hours north of Madison, um, looking around their town hall, their facilities, um, talking to them about how they're going to use this influx of money. So what's in Pobble River? So Popple River is a very small town. There's uh, 43 people are full-time. They also have a lot of part-time cabin owners. So there are some cabins um, in the town. There are two main roads. Um, One of them is an old highway. 
Um, and on one of those roads, it's the town hall, which is a medium-sized building, um, about 100 years old. And also on that property uh, behind there is an outhouse, um, which the clerks use, uh, or the election poll workers use um, when they're at the polls. There's a lot of woods up there. Um, it's in the National Forest. But, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful small town, and they're very welcoming and very proud of their town. And what did they have to say about the funding increase? Yeah, so the majority of the increase that they're getting is going to go to fire and EMS services. So, and this is something that a lot of towns are expecting to use the shared revenue for. So previously they had used, um, their volunteer service was volunteer-based, and it is now switching to full-time. Um, and that is something that a lot of towns are experiencing. Um, there's more calls that are coming in from an aging population, um, and there have been recruitment challenges. So the bulk of that money is going to be used for EMS services, and then they have about 5000 remaining for a long wish list that they described to me. And, and what kind of things are on that wish list? Sure. So one of the, one of the big-ticket items that they called it is putting indoor plumbing in the town hall. So currently they have the outhouse that sits back. Um, so having an extension to the town hall that can have running water and a kitchenette is something that they're hoping to do. And uh, would you say Popple River is unusual in, in towns in Wisconsin, or is this something that basically every town is going to be facing a sudden, a sudden windfall? Yeah, yeah. So Popple River um, is definitely unique in terms of the percentage increase um, that they're getting. But really, towns in Wisconsin overall are probably the biggest winners of this deal. Um, I think something to the tune of 157% over what they used to get in shared revenue is what they'll be getting now. Um, and cities, counties, and villages are getting still getting increases. Everyone is going to benefit from this deal and see additional money. But towns are really, really seeing um, the biggest increases compared to other types of local governments. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about how the state government has chosen to structure this revenue sharing? That seems to be part of why there's a little structural inequality there. Sure, sure. Um, so from my understanding, the way that the formula works in this new law um, is that it favors the tinier communities in Wisconsin. So the way that Popple River got so much money is that it made a calculation based on the population and added $30,000. So towns that were getting lesser amounts are now getting a lot more. And it was a little bit unclear to Popple River and myself as well how exactly the town had been getting so little in the beginning. Um, and they did they did point out that they're still going to be getting less than neighboring towns of certain sizes. Um, so it's still a little bit unclear how exactly the formulas work, but that's something we can look into in the future too. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you also sort of drew this parallel in your, your article between what's going on with the towns and what's going on with the cities. So, so you want to tell me a little bit about where, where does revenue sharing go in the cities? Sure. Yeah. So really communities can use shared revenue for any purposes. And obviously towns like Popple River are offering fewer different services um, to their citizens versus big cities like Milwaukee. So Popple River, the main things that the town needs to provide are road maintenance um, and certain services like fire and EMS. And so Milwaukee is offering a lot more services to its citizens. And there have been some critics of the shared revenue deal that say Milwaukee should have gotten a higher percent increase. They got 10% increase in the shared revenue deal um, because of those services they provide. 
Um, the other thing about the shared revenue compromise um, included was additional strings for Milwaukee. So they were allowed to raise their sales taxes, um, but it put some restrictions on how local government functions in Milwaukee, including um, eliminating some of the power of the Police and Fire Commission. So it's easy to sort of pit bigger cities like Milwaukee against Popple River, but the people I talked to in Popple River didn't really weren't really interested in seeing it that way. They're, they're mostly concerned about making sure that their town is functioning um, and is able to have the money that lets their town stay afloat. Was the sense that the Popple River really needed this revenue sharing to come through and that it was inadequate previously? Absolutely, yeah. I think I think this came at a perfect time for Popple River because they are just making the switch um, from volunteer to full-time EMS. And um, the chairperson uh, that I talked to in Popple River pointed out that if the fire department were to switch to vol- or from, from volunteer to full-time, that they would also have to come up with that money right away. And so um, they, they characterize the 600 as a drop in the bucket. Um, and this is definitely going to give them a little bit more cushioning as they, as they deal with some inflation-related expenses. But it definitely won't cover everything they need to do in their town. Did you have anything else about this uh, sojourn you went on that you wanted to add? Anything interesting you found in Popple River? One thing I'll add about how Popple River does its business is how frugal they have to be in terms of where they're spending their money. Um, so one of the things that they showed me was their equipment shed, and they have a grader, um, which does road maintenance work. Um, it grades the gravel roads and does some snow removal, too, in spring. Um, and there's a lot of expenses that go into just maintaining that equipment. So one of the tires they replaced cost $950, which is more than the original shared revenue payment they were getting from the state. And they bought that equipment used. It's 40 years old, and they bought it off of Craigslist. And the treasurer told me that, you know, that really illustrates how the town has to find bargains um, because their budget is so limited. So even though they're getting, you know, this 5,000% increase, it doesn't mean that they're going to have all of their, you know, budgetary wishes fulfilled. Um, and so this is a great, they reiterated, you know, they're very grateful for this windfall. Um but there's a lot of costs that go into managing a town, you know, like fire um, and EMS protection. I've been on the line with Hope Carnop. She's a Pulitzer Center fellow covering state government and politics in Madison for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And she's an alumna of the UW-Madison Journalism School, the Daily Cardinal, and WORT. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to Local News on WORT. I'm your host, Nicole Alley, here with my co-host, Sarah Hopeful. Thanks for joining us. The Trail Tuesday feature series we've been bringing you this summer is making its last stop this week. It's a park in Rock County that WORT contributor Reed Kamai has paid a visit to this time around. Welcome to another edition of Trail Tuesday. This week, we head to Rock County and walk the horse-friendly trails of Gibbs Lake County Park. Gibbs Lake County Park is located six miles east of the Evansville Town Center. There are multiple places to park and enter. I did so at the boat launch lot off West Gibbs Lake Road, which can be reached from County Road H. The parking spaces are notably wide, which probably has to do with the lot's use for launching boats, though I imagine length is what would be important. Not that I'm complaining. Being a boat launch lot, 
The lake is right there as you get out, and the view is beautiful. There are likely to be other folks present, so don't expect much quiet. If fishing is your thing, Gibbs Lake is for you. Fish such as walleye and bass can be found, especially early in the season. The lake from the boat launch is not the only one present in this vicinity. A small stream connects to a smaller body of water, Little Gibbs Lake, which is difficult to access due to the marshland in between the lakes. There is a picnic area in the wide open space the parking lots face with tables, grills, and a bathroom. From there are two trail entrances, one on the left side and one on the right. I would go on to return from the left side, but I wanted to start on the right as it runs beside the lake. Just after we enter that path is a very antiquated mechanism to check out. Yeah, let's go into this way to the right. And there's, I think one of these hand wells is I think what this is. This is super interesting. I've never actually, I didn't know this, there was such a thing that existed. Oh, uh, but yeah, they have this thing right in the middle. And then, curious if this thing actually works. Let's give it a try. Okay, yeah, so you lift that back lever. Oh, what? Well, I think I got it stuck. Oh, is any water coming out of it? I don't know if this thing actually works. Oh, wait, oh, what if you push it down? Okay, so when you push it up or down, it kind of stays wherever it is, so it's not like it returns to its original position. Nothing came out, so I don't know if this thing, I, I, I wonder if it even works, but... This device is meant to pull water from wells. A lever in the back can be raised or lowered to work the pump, but as you heard me commentate, no water came out of it. Continuing on, the path consists mostly of dirt with small patches of grass. It soon leads to an opening with a section of taller grass that's probably not meant to be walked in, with the parts around it mown down to lead to some other paths. One such option on the hard right takes you closer to the water. There's also an opening to the water about halfway between that route and the continuation straight in the direction we were headed initially. It's a nice view, though it's logically quite muddy, and there's another such view shortly after continuing straight. This path takes us to the southern section of the park. Visitors are permitted to explore the trails on horseback, and in fact, I came across one early in the walk. The trails are wide enough such that horses can walk by each other in opposite directions. While the county asks that owners clean up after their horses, that sadly did not always happen. So as you walk, keep an eye out for horse manure on the ground. We eventually reach a fork, at which point there's a slight right or a hard left turn that can be made. I took the slight right, expecting that the hard left would have taken me back to the start. The same thing happened at another intersection later on. After that are some short spells, maybe a hundred feet long, of being exposed to the sun before re-entering shady stretches. The trails throughout the southern part of the park are very flat, which is good if that's what you like, or if you're looking for a gentle route for cross-country skiing, another permitted activity at the park. Soon we cross a gravel road that leads to a private residence. Across from it is the continuation of the park trails and the first of some muddy patches we'll see. This is the first time in this feature series we've encountered such a thing, and I'm amazed it's taken this long. Fortunately, the edges of the pads were dry, and I could step through that way to stay clean. After the mud is a wide circular opening in the trail, in the middle of which is a large tire laid on its side. In the opening is lots of soil. Is it meant to be a garden, perhaps? More on that soon. I had a feel of the tire, and it is proper rubber, despite not necessarily appearing as such. We come up to another fork in the road, where a left turn takes us onto a sunnier path, and a right turn keeps us in the shade. I again expected that turning left would take us back to the start, which is not what I wanted at that point, so I turned right. Immediately after that is another fork. The directions this time lead to relatively parallel paths. I again stayed to the right, mostly because I could somewhat see the farmland across County Road H. The grass gets a bit taller here, but not as tall as at the Adam Birding Conservancy as you might recall from three weeks ago. 
A variety of pollinator-friendly plants line this part of the trail. At the end of this path is a T-intersection. Turning right, which is what I did, takes us to the North Trail Loop across West Gibbs Lake Road. This loop, about a mile long, is out in the sun and surrounds an area full of reeds and, to a lesser extent, other wildflowers. Unlike the South Loop, this section has a 50-foot drop in elevation from what it is when you enter the loop. Near where I entered is a set of six standing tires, smaller than the one from before. They were the closest thing I found to a table I could use to get out my water for a sip, so I took advantage. I later learned that these tires, the one earlier, and a set of wood blocks in between the parallel trails we were just on all serve as obstacle courses for horses. There are three other obstacle courses as well throughout the park. Coming back around, we can cross back over West Gibbs Lake Road and turn right at the intersection thereafter. We shortly approach another parking lot. This is the lot where visitors on horseback are asked to start as opposed to the boat launch lot. There's a pavilion with picnic tables that can be reserved for use. By staying on the trail we were just on, we progress back towards the start, continue straight at the next four-way intersection, and then turn left at the T afterwards. This takes us back through the second of the two entrances through the picnic space we started in. The route I took through this park, as suggested by health and travel app All Trails, runs just about three and a half miles. And in that long journey, we found wonderful views of lakes and farmland, along with intriguing elements not previously discovered in this feature series. Speaking of the series, this sadly is the last new edition of Trail Tuesday. I hope you all had as much fun listening and learning about these trails as I did exploring them. I certainly hope that my adventures inspired you to see these locations for yourself, or perhaps to explore one I didn't get to for this set of visits. If you missed any of the episodes, stay tuned on Tuesdays over the coming weeks because we will be replaying some of my favorite visits from the summer. And remember that every episode is archived with transcription on our website at wortfm.org, so you can check them out at any time. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. And as the theme song for The Roy Rogers Show goes, happy trails to you. Until we meet again. This week on Wildlife Weekly, contributor Jackie Sandberg tells us about an unusual sighting spotted near a road. It's a little reptile with a stinky reputation that might be in a wetland near you. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about musk turtles. Musk turtles are not a very common turtle here at our wildlife center because they're kind of rare. I don't really want to say that because they're not really a species of turtle that is considered critically endangered or threatened or even of population concern. They're actually least concerned by the IUCN red list, which is a conservation list that you definitely should take a look at if you ever want to know what the status of a species is and their uh, populations and their critical status in the U.S. or nationally or internationally. The musk turtle is definitely a common turtle. I just never see them. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, I say that just because like when you're out and about and you're out walking and you're in Madison and maybe you're, you know, at the Arboretum or you're in some nice wetland habitat, 
I feel like the most common turtles that I always see are painted turtles and snapping turtles, sometimes softshell turtles. Um, but the musk turtle is such a solitary weird turtle that you almost never see them. So the reason I wanted to talk about them today is because we got one admitted that seems to be an adult, probably a male. Um, and it was admitted after it was found, um, actually dropped off at a, um, a pet world warehouse area. So. You know, I know it's common for folks to not know what to do with an animal if they find it. Um, and in this case, it was found in the middle of a road trying to get up over a concrete barrier. Um, and this poor turtle wasn't able to get to where it was headed or where it wanted to go. Um, and not really sure how long it had been struggling for. But um, people kindly picked him up and then took him to the most logical place, which was a pet store. Um and the pet store is wonderful, and uh, I have to give big kudos and thanks to knowing who to call right away and what to do. Um, but they knew it wasn't a domestic turtle, and so they said, oh, we should get this turtle to the wildlife center. Now, it's always preferable from a rehabilitator standpoint that we get all of the information from the original people who find them, um, just in the case that this turtle was, you know, potentially, you know, kept as a pet and not actually uh, found out in the wild. But based on our uh, veterinarian's assessment, this turtle is actually healthy, which is good. Um, so it is unlikely that it was kept um, and it sounds like it was actually, you know, found in the road. We just assume that it was that day. Um, and the musk turtle, uh, we decided after seeing photos of it and everything, just to get it in, just because it was probably dehydrated from being stuck on the, the road and in the middle of those concrete barriers. And, you know, we never know for sure until you really examine the animal whether or not they're truly sick or injured. So in this case, we decided to play it safe rather than sorry, because we knew that we would be able to at least get that turtle back to where it came from. But the reason I say that they are so hard to find and that they're solitary is just because that's the way they are. They don't really have very many babies. Uh, they're actually a really small turtle, about, you know, uh, three to five inches or so when um, they're at adulthood. Really, they don't reach adulthood until about four years old. But believe it or not, they can live up to 50 to, I think the record is 69 years old. And that is an incredibly long life for a tiny turtle. Um, they're very conical shaped, uh, blackish brownish, um, really nice round domed carapace, which is the top of the shell. Um, they have some spiky, spikies? I don't know if I can actually say that, but spikies on their um, kind of the tail and the skin. Um, they kind of look like hooked barbs almost. Um, it's a kind of a really cool thing to see up close. Um, and then they also have a very classically triangular nose. And that was the first thing I noticed about this turtle when um, I heard about it potentially needing help. Uh, we had them send pictures to our, our text line. We have that for the public in the case of uh, sickness, injuries, so we can triage. And this turtle had such a pointy triangular nose. And I was like, oh, that's a musk turtle. Uh, so he's a very tiny little friend uh, with a very pointed nose. And he's called a musk turtle because, well, what do you do you, when you've been picked up by a human or you feel like you're in danger? You musk. Well, at least a lot of reptiles do. So snakes do this too. But uh, the musk turtle got its name, uh, also nicknamed the stink pot, because of how foul the order is when it comes out of the musk areas. So it's really stinky. It's gross. Uh, but that's why they're called musk turtles. 
Um, they spend most of their time in like low wetland, deep water areas where it's not very fast moving water. And they're known for walking on the bottoms of the lakes because they don't swim very well. So they just kind of amble along and find their food and eat mostly meat. So they're more mostly carnivorous, uh, mostly things like, you know, crayfish and snails and um, other bits that fall to the bottom of the ponds in the mud. Um, and the other really cool thing about them that I found fascinating is that they have a beautiful underside, which is the plastron, and it's got uh, this very cool web-like look. It's called an umbilical scar, um, but it, it's really uh, wide in males versus females, but it's like kind of like you can see the the center of the puzzle pieces of each of the scoots coming together um, and it just makes it really pretty so uh, kind of like an outline of each of the scoots just really thick um, so if you ever get the chance definitely check it out um, there are uh, great documentary well I would say that there's at least a good documentation of where musk turtles have been found in Wisconsin if you check the DNR's website and there's an all about turtles uh, of the different species that are here and where they have been found um, so we do have them in Dane County Again, just not something we see very often at the Rehabilitation Center at, at the Humane Society. So um, we were happy to say that this uh, friend got a veterinary exam full, um, you know, fluids and a little bit of rest and is now outside in one of our outdoor turtle enclosures. And since it seems to be overall relatively healthy, we are scheduling it for release here back to where it came from in the next couple of days. So just an exciting story, a really cool species. Wanted to share that with you today here on WORT. Uh, we really appreciate you listening. And if you ever have any questions about wildlife or you find any animal and you're not sure what to do with it and it's sick or injured, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. Ever wanted to learn the Irish language? A program at UW-Madison offers language classes to the campus community. And a similar program, along with a weekly conversation circle, is being offered to people outside of campus through the Isthmus Conversation Circle. WORT reporter Hee-Wan Lim spoke with Dr. Becky Shields, an instructional administrator in UW-Madison's Language Sciences Department, who is bringing the program back this fall. I am here today with Dr. Becky Shields, who is leading efforts to bring Irish to Madison. So tell me a little bit about this program. So I'm, I'm an instructor and an academic advisor in the language sciences program here at UW-Madison. And my grandfather was actually a native speaker of Irish, and I have always wanted to learn the language myself. And you know, a few years ago, I started learning it myself, and I just had some people ask if I would start teaching it to them as well. So I've been doing that for the past maybe three or so years, been teaching Irish Gaelic in the in the community online. And as of last year, I started teaching it on campus at UW-Madison, you know, in a somewhat unofficial capacity. So it's a, a light type of class. Um, we meet just once a week for an hour for complete beginners and students, if they want to, they can sign up for a credit to get credit for their work or people can join in without credit if they simply want to audit. The class open to students as well as faculty or staff, anyone who's affiliated uh, with, with UW-Madison. Um, and we did it last year. We had a ton of fun. It was it was really great. Had a lot of enthusiastic people and I'm running it again uh, starting this fall. 
That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about your partners in the class? I saw that you have a partnership with the Isthmus Conversation Circle, for example. Um, yes, the Isthmus Conversation Circle, or Kirtko Koda Nakinya, as it's called in Irish. That's our community group that I started actually before I started teaching at UW Madison. I started this community organization, and that I just started because I wanted to have some conversation partners in Irish. I was studying Irish and really wanted, you know, a local group where I can meet other people in the community who were learning Irish as well or interested in learning about it. So yeah, I started this group a few years ago and it's been going strong. We meet on Zoom mostly. Occasionally we'll have like a little in-person get together somewhere, but mostly we meet over Zoom every Sunday at four and anyone who has some kind of conversational level of Irish, welcome to join. And it is on Zoom. So we started just being people in Madison, but now we have participants from all over the Midwest, people from Canada or, you know, other, other places too. So it's, it, you know, it's online. So really anyone is welcome. And we have a lot of fun just practicing using the Irish that we're all learning. Are there other opportunities for people who are interested in learning Irish in Madison who aren't part of the campus community? Sure, definitely. Well, first of all, there is a woman named Deneen Grow who was uh, formerly a librarian here at UW-Madison and used to teach Irish formerly at UW-Madison as well. She is still here. She's retired now from the UW, but she's still here and offers lessons so you can get in touch with her and organize individual lessons. So that's one possibility. She's a, a local teacher, a very, very experienced local teacher. And there are lots and lots of online classes now, including some for free or very, very low cost. So if you can go to our website, it's in Irish, so it might be hard for people to remember, but org. And have you noticed that the Madison community has shown a lot of interest in learning Irish or in learning more Irish? Definitely, yeah. Um, we have several participants who are really gung-ho, who are really into it. And, and I've seen new people join in Madison and from other areas as well. Last year here on campus, we had a big event that we called Shaftin Hulter Gailey. And we had speakers and we had several different events. And that was tied to the Chunol Gaelige or the Irish language gathering that's in Milwaukee. Milwaukee every every March. And we had a bunch of people from the community, not just from the university, but all kinds of people come out for that and do um, a beginning Irish class or come to some of the lectures about Irish politics and folklore and a bunch of other interesting things. So that was really good. Um, And we're planning on doing probably some events this year as well. We haven't decided what yet, maybe film festival, maybe, you know, other speakers or events this year. So it'll be really fun things that anyone can come, can attend, not limited necessarily to UW-Madison affiliated people. I noticed that Irish is currently classified as definitely endangered by UNESCO. Could you tell me a little bit about the preservation efforts of the Irish language and culture that are going on right now? It's a difficult question and and actually the results of the most recent census actually just came out not too long ago. The Irish government does a census where they try to keep tabs on how, you know, how Irish is doing. And they, they do a census. They're supposed to do every five years because of the pandemic. They had to delay one year. So instead of 2021, they did a 2022. And that just came out. And the results are mixed. In one sense, Irish seems to be doing really well. There's, I think it's something like 1.8 or more than 1.8 million people 
reported within Ireland reported that they can speak Irish. So when asked the question, can you speak Irish? They said yes. And that's an increase. And maybe even more people than spoke Irish on the island of Ireland before the famine, before the potato famine. So, I mean, that sounds really incredible. However, when they asked, not just can you speak Irish, but do you speak Irish every day? Do you speak Irish at least once a week? The numbers of people who report actually using the language and speaking it outside the education system, unfortunately, those numbers have declined um, and continue to decline. Especially worrying is that the population of people who do speak Irish and who do use it seems to be aging. Fewer younger speakers are, are actually speaking it outside of school than Ireland. So in other words, that's, that's definitely concerning. But people have been predicting that Irish is going to go away for a very long time. For many, many years, people keep predicting the imminent death, you know, for more than 100 years. And it hasn't yet. And there's so many people who are very passionate about it and who are really, really interested in it and are trying to preserve it, including there's an incredible network of language classes that are available online now, some from within Ireland, some from volunteer groups within the United States. So there's, for example, a group called Kanra Ngelige, or the, the Gaelic League, which was founded in Ireland in the 19th century and now has branches all across the world. And there are branches in the U.S. And they offer classes online for anyone who wants to learn. And they offer activities, ways to use Irish outside the classroom as well. There's a branch in Milwaukee. There's a branch in New York, one in L.A., among some other places. So, you know, it's kind of underground network in a way of people across the world who are interested in learning and preserving the languages. It gives me a lot of hope. So I'm not convinced that things are as dreary. I think we can still turn it around. There's still enough people interested in it across the world and children learning it in schools within Ireland. It's going to be okay, but it is going to take a lot of effort because there's a lot of pressure, as always, um, in situations like this, a lot of pressure from the majority language, which, of course, is is English in um, in Ireland. That's really reassuring to hear. As for you, you mentioned earlier very briefly that you started learning Irish because of your heritage. How did you personally learn Irish? Well, yeah, it, uh, my impetus probably was initially my heritage. Also, I did Irish dancing when I was younger and really, really loved that. And I loved the dancing and the music, you know, just kind of, it was my reason for wanting to learn. I wanted to learn ever since I was a child, but I always just thought, well, there aren't really any resources for it. I wasn't aware of the resources that existed. And I started, of course, I'm a linguist, have a degree, doctorate in linguistics and study languages, uh, study the linguistics of languages. And I was reading some linguistics articles about Irish and thought it was really interesting. And then somehow I just kind of stumbled on the fact that there are online resources, online courses that you can do from anywhere in the world. And I think it's a relatively recent development, like right around that time, there's a new set of self-paced courses from Dublin City University. They're not live Zoom classes. They're just kind of self-paced, tutorial-based things. Those came out right around that time, and I started doing those and um, got really addicted. And then, um, and then, of course, what happened is the pandemic kicked in right around that time as well and learned to have online kind of live Zoom classes. That became a really common thing. That we all, by necessity, you know, <laughs> learned to do, had to do during the pandemic. And even though, I, you know, in many ways, I was not happy with that, right? Obviously, but at the same time, that had a really good benefit for me and for many people who want to maybe study something like Irish or something unusual. 
that wasn't, you know, that may not be available in their local area, suddenly I could take online classes from the most amazing teachers, from writers, poets, native speakers, uh, wonderful, wonderful teachers in, from within Ireland. And yeah, I was just, I was able to develop not only an understanding of Irish, but also speaking skills in Irish because of that opportunity. Yeah, and as I was doing research for this interview, I saw that there are three dialects of Irish, Munster, Ulster, and Connacht. Which dialect of Irish do you primarily speak? I primarily speak the the Ulster dialect, even though my grandfather was actually from Bantry in Cork, which is the, the southern Munster dialect. But it just so happened almost all of my teachers were from the north, were from Donegal or Derry or other parts of Ulster. So I ended up learning the Ulster dialect. I love it. I love all the dialects of Irish. They're all really beautiful. Uh, But that's the the accent that I happen to learn. Are there big differences between the three dialects? Are they all mutually intelligible? Oh, they're definitely all mutually intelligible. If, If you're a little bit familiar with the actual pronunciation, there are some differences in Of course, the vocabulary, there's a little bit of difference even in some grammatical issues. And then, of course, the pronunciation is different. It takes a little bit of getting used to, but I can understand reasonably well. I can understand all three. The way that I pronounce things tends to be more like the Ulster dialect. What's a word in Irish to express excitement for a project, to express excitement for these classes that are coming up soon? Oh, you could say erbis, tame erbis. Tame erbis? Am I saying that correctly? Erbish. Yep, that means I'm really excited. Tame Erbish. Well, Tame Erbish for your classes in the fall, and I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you so much. Gudamayagat. Thank you. Gudamayagat. <laughs> and what would I say in response to that? Oh, you could say, well, you could say, Tafalcherut. You are welcome. That's one way to respond. Tafalcherut. Am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yep. Very good. Inta, Inta Meyerfad. Wonder, wonderfully good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today and giving me insight as to all of these efforts to bring Irish to Madison. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's The Live Local News at 6. Nate Carlin produced this newscast. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Nicole Alley. 